Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody, my name's John Bleasdell, I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to the screenwriter of a new film on the Unabomber called Ted K. The screenwriter's name is John Rosenthal, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a departure for us because I think this might be the first time we've had a screenwriter as a guest. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. By the way, apologies if... uh, Either this episode or the the one prior to this is a little bit shakily edited, but um, I'm still recovering from COVID, as you might be able to hear from the one side effect that I quite like about COVID is it gives you a little bit of a deeper voice. Um, uh, not exactly Tom Waits, but, but going there. Uh, so that's that's all good. Um, if you like the episode, remember to subscribe, uh, to like, to post it on Facebook or Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of those many, many things I've just asked you to do, please enjoy the conversation. Our first sort of screenwriter. The, uh, uh, mm. So you're a pioneer. I like pioneering. <laughs> I don't want to put any pressure on you, but if this doesn't go well, you'll be the last screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first, right, or whatever. Oh, oh, there so, you go. so, so something said once. So, um, why don't you just tell me a bit about your background, John? I mean, I, I, we've we met a. a, a, a about a month ago in a very strange place. Uh, so I know a little bit about you, but uh, but for our listeners, why don't you give us a sort of um, a, a little bit of a biography? Sure. Well, I think I'm a very non-traditional screenwriter, if that means anything. Uh, in fact, I, I studied history at college. I worked as a um, historical writer and researcher for the New York City Parks Department right out of school and did a lot of uh, freelance writing work for some really crappy uh, magazines, did a lot of editing work, but really my background is in history and research. When I was younger, I thought I would be a writer of some writing short fiction or something like that, some delusional ideas. Um, But I sort of back-ended into filmmaking and screenwriting through Tony Stone, who you met, 
who I went to college with, who is just this sort of like a tornado force of nature in terms of creativity. And he, we made a film called Severed Ways, which is a very psychedelic, uh, bizarre period piece about two Vikings stranded in North America in the 11th century. And he initially, because I'm also a musician, I've been in bands and toured all over the place since God knows when. And I, uh, he had called me and initially asked me to do sound on that movie because I adept at doing sound recording and things like that. And I showed up and then he asked me, um, he's like, well, you're good at history and stuff. And do you think you could translate some of this very scant dialogue into Norse, which is something I have never studied before. So then I found myself doing that. And then suddenly he and I were collaborating on the story. And then the next thing you know, I'm credited, I think as a, I'm credited with the original story or something, but also as an AD on that movie, which is really bizarre because I don't think, I mean, obviously I know what that entails now, but at the time I had no idea that I was doing AD and production work. This was over 20 years ago. So yeah, I backed into it that way. And then we started um, collaborating pretty actively writing scripts. He's my main script writing partner, although I do work with a couple other guys. I really enjoy collaborative writing. Um, I've written my own scripts, but I really, you know, we have a very unique um, situation with Heathen Films where it's a group of guys who've essentially known each other for, by the way, Heathen Films is our um, filmmaking company that uh, Tony started and all of us sort of jumped in on. And we're essentially a core of guys and ladies who have known each other for 25 years, 20 plus years. Um, Most of us went to college together, so we share a pretty concise aesthetic. So I think, you know, I am a screenwriter, but I think I have a very unique sort of engagement with screenwriting where I'm not like a journeyman. Perhaps I will be, you know, if these things become more successful, but in the moment, it's really essentially like, I feel I'm like a hybrid screenwriter, producer, kind of wearing many hats in, in, in this world of film. And so I didn't see myself becoming a filmmaker, although I've been obsessed in one way or another with all types of cinema since I was a kid, you know, sneaking into my living room at night when I was supposed to be in bed and turning the TV on and finding some wacko thing on cable and getting totally blown away by it while my siblings want to watch whatever. I was watching the weirdest stuff I could find. So yeah, I, I think I'm, I think I'm a very uh, peculiar type of screenwriter, if that makes sense. And I'm also, I was going to say in my topics, you know, we're not in, I, I haven't written a rom-com. Um, I love comedy, but you know, we're really, um, we've been on this path of taking historical narratives um, and sort of flipping the way period movies work and applying much more classic sense of cinema to what would be a period film, I think. So that's bringing in also your sort of background in history. Correct. And uh, you said you were a music- musician, musician. Uh, what form was that taking? You were touring, right? Yes, I was in a really rowdy and raucous rock band for many years uh, with actually one of the guys who's done a lot of work with us at Heathen Films. I've played, I play string instruments, mainly double bass and electric bass, guitar, um, but you know, I've been playing an instrument of one sort or another since as long as I can remember. So I thought at one point that would be the direction my life would just stick with, but you know, touring around in a band with a bunch of smelly guys for years on end becomes a it becomes a drag so I'm really happy that my life has shifted in this direction <laughs> but you did have you you did have like a um I mean you had quite a lot of success with the music right yeah I yes uh, signed on labels toured all over the states and yada yada the, the whole thing but you know success it's just a very subjective quality so like I don't like it didn't translate into massive amounts of money but we have fans and it was it was fun it's definitely a young man's game and now I'm over 40 and it's not, not the being you know prancing around on stage having people throw crap at you is a you know it, pa- it passes its its fun point <laughs> Yeah, I could never deal with people throwing stuff. <laughs> that never. Right. So writing a script, you know, when you're just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks versus having someone throw a beer ball at you is a lot uh, more engaging. So w- when you were sneaking into the living room and watching some films, what 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 was the wacky stuff that you were that, that first sort of hit you and first sort of made you think, okay, I'm the, uh, I'm I'm weird. This is weird. Well, I remember. Let's see, maybe my earliest film memory, probably 2001, mm. when I was before under 10 and that was on cable and I think it was cable and just being totally blown away by it and you know I was when you're like a very stereotypical boy I loved 
space and astronauts. And I thought, oh, great, this is going to be a space movie. And, uh, you know, I think I, I maybe my another early memory of a space movie was like Moonraker or something like a James Bond. So then <laughs> I'm like, OK, this have some sort of quality of that. And then just being immersed in how beautiful it looked and also how strange it looked. And I knew enough to know that, yeah, space is a vacuum. There'd be no sound. And obviously Star Wars and seeing those types of action movies as a kid and no, uh, and then being a, the nerd that's like, well, you know, lasers don't go pew, pew in space. There's actually no sound. So suddenly I'm seeing something that is hyper-realistic on that end, but then has this very, well, as you know, just really poetic and and, and just absolutely uh, riveting imagery and, and that very flat two-dimensional Kubrick storytelling where the characters just represent something that's not necessarily too deep because they don't need to. And just being blown away by it, I remember my brother coming into the room being like, what the fuck is this? It was just like so you know, being bored and leaving. So yeah, that's that's one of them. It definitely was the other thing I, 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 well, there was those. And then I used to, in, in the tri-state area where I grew up, they used to have um, Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films on Saturday afternoons, which I really loved because they were so absurd. So I think it was a mix of, of you know, just really spinning the dial and, and seeing something and landing on it. And, and never, like, I love, it's not that I didn't love popcorn action movies because I would go to those with my family but it I just really once I saw 2001 and then Dr. Strangelove not too long after that Psycho I just really started diving in and and seeking out things um uh you know everything was in color I like to find black and white movies just to be a little different and so I was always the one when I would go over for a sleepover and maybe bring a VHS tape and someone would be like like Big Mark Bergman and then they <laughs> kick me out of the room <laughs> A razor head? What's that? I would joke around, but then it would end up, you know, then I'd end up watching something like Killer Clowns from Outer Space with everybody and still enjoying it. But the part of me was always like, oh, my friends don't like this stuff, but but I do. It's funny that you mentioned 2001 being kind of divisive, but, you know, in terms of sort of your brother coming in and, and, and wandering out. I, I, I remember watching that with my family as well, and it being a big Christmas film. Like the first time it was shown on British television was New Year's Day, I think. And the whole family sitting down to watch it and just one by one, everybody's sort of drifting off as he's like, are the, are the monkeys still on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember, try, I think I tried to show, maybe my dad, I can't remember, Barry Lyndon once. I mean, I'm like, ah, oh, you might like this. It's a historical film. And uh, I remember him just quickly, <laughs> like, oh, check it out, dad. I mean, you know, it's got Ryan O'Neill in it. I think it was one of Martin Scorsese's documentaries on cinema. He talks about Barry Lyndon and he refers to a Japanese sense of time. And I've, and ever since then, I've used that as a euphemism for boring. You know, it's not boring. Oh, yeah. It's a Japanese sense of time. Glacial pace. Or the, uh, you know, I can make a drinking game out of the amount of times he has to duel, which becomes kind of fun. But uh, anyway, so, you know, I, I definitely gravitated it would be a mix and then of course you know i'd love if it's a big popcorn movie when i was a kid i loved the first indiana jones movie just because it felt so much like what i would or the black and white serials that my mom used to say like oh you should these were fun when i was a kid i used to love these serial sort of movies and and this feels a lot like it so that type of storytelling is great but yeah i wonder if the, these days that sort of uh, people have access to that because i remember like saturday morning they used to show flash gordon serials Oh yeah, all, all the all the way through the summer on just on TV, just on normal TV, like before the you know in between cartoons, there'd be Tom and Jerry, oh. and then a Flash Gordon serial, and then something else. So you kind of got used to watching very very old stuff. I just wonder if these days with Netflix and everything, there's the same sort of. I know everything is now available, but I'm wondering if if it's everything but on a quite a shallow spread. I tend to agree with you. It might be on the shallow spread. I mean, I think. Everything's so atomized and having that limited, I mean, this is, it's not, I'm not breaking a new ground here saying that, but have, saying this, having that limited sort of access and sort of being given like, it's the Saturday morning, whatever movie on channel five and just having to watch it, it would be an Abbott Costello film or, or the Three Stooges, whatever it was. I, you know, I, you were sort of captive to that. And now you know, I, I think you really, if some, I, I meet kids who really like a variety of things and but it's a much more cultivated type of attitude where I think I just sort of I, I stumbled upon things that I, you know that I couldn't type in and search and find myself and then curate myself they're just given to me even though like in like I said if it was 2001 simply if I 
if it didn't appeal to me, I'd turn it off or leave the room. But now I think that ability to just self-curate and makes, I don't know if it's any less or a, it's just a different interaction to aesthetics than I think you and I had growing up, obviously. So you get into making films really with Tony at quite sort of quite a light, late stage in your in your career yeah um and what's the first screenplay that you you collaborate on like from scratch well so severed ways was very much an improvised movie we had a, an outline and we right. you know i should i could backtrack say like my my approach to storytelling is very much rooted in probably my favorite book like don quixote or like the idea of like pair drama like you know you have one very active flat character and then you have a second character who's sort of doubting the action of a flat character that has a propulsive journey i like the very um i like the sort of quality of storytelling where you have as if you're reading a picture book and you turn one page and it's just a vast vista and it's like he traveled forward and like you know that kind of propulsive classic tale um uh, uh animus is something that really that I gravitate to. So when we moved on, that film very much feels like a fable. So when we moved on from that and started collaborating, we had this idea that we were going to do this sort of trilogy of, of uh, American um, political history films, uh, very rooted in controversial figures. So the first one that we wrote was about John Brown. And it was massive. I mean, the script is so long, it's ridiculous. But Tony's like, throw everything into it. I think it's like over 200 pages. I mean, we had to like edit it down a lot, but it's got like, uh, it's just unbelievable. And my my initial um, inclination was to make it sort of like a Western and rooted in Brown's uh, life in Kansas um, and make it like a very psychedelic, bizarro, biblical Western. Uh, but instead, Tony wanted to do this big sweep. So we worked on that for a long time. And then in this sort of, American terror trilogy, let's say, because John Brown, much like Ted Kaczynski, was labeled a, essentially a terrorist, although they didn't really use that word in the 19th century. They, they used it to a degree, but not like we do now. But this idea of political violence, he was very extremely controversial. And throughout, until the 1960s, really, there was no revision on his um, place in American history. It was just sort of the madman with a beard who, who kicked off the Civil War. And then with the Civil Rights Movement, he becomes this uh, revised figure, or much more like kind of like a prophetic figure, um, and and somewhat modern. So similarly, uh, we were drawn to Ted Kaczynski in this way, not to make him a hero, but to re-examine what it means to be a political criminal in a way, a terrorist, right? So, uh, and then the third script we wrote was a script about um, Ted Hampton, but of course that would probably become uh, there was the recent Ted Hampton movie, but then uh, Fred Hampton, I'm sorry, but then that, that's something that would have been difficult for us to make as as uh, as uh, Anglo-American film white filmmakers. Uh, understanding that, we would have probably ended up having to collaborate and adapt the script and 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 broaden our 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 team for that, which we should. But we were, it was more about taking these characters that are maligned and trying to expose them in a new light. So we worked, we worked on this trilogy and of the three, um, Kaczynski was the one that got the attention to be made. And actually we, it, it, it felt, it felt more enigmatic and not to take anything away from Fred Hampton or, or John Brown, just the idea of Kaczynski presented himself similar to like historical figures like Johnny Appleseed that you don't think are real in a way, but they end up being True. So it's sort of like in an age of access and information, here's this man who sort of harkens back to the time of legend in a way, like how he lives and acts like a, a, hermit, a hermetic wizard out in the mountains, making conjuring explosives and and and, and causing destruction um, feels much more legendary than and Brown sort of is this way, but it was it was interesting that Kaczynski is sort of a cipher in that way that some of these other figures aren't so much. Yeah, I mean, my first experience of the first time I ever heard of Kaczynski is I heard Unabomber, but I think it was like a news report on almost like a genre of threat was like, oh, there's a suspected Unabomber in Italy. And and it was used as sort of like the, the word that means somebody who's leaving bomb packages here and there as a genre of killer rather than as there's an actual individual who started all this so I was yeah I, I definitely see what you mean by that idea that he's 
he's someone who's sort of, he, he's there in the back of everyone's head, but a bit like Rudolf Valentino, it's kind of a surprise. Oh, there actually is a Valentino. I thought that was just a, a cartoon figure or something. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great analogy. I mean, he, in, in the 90s, <clears throat> you know, he was suspected as being a, a radical environmental environmentalist by the media and certainly the right wing wanted to portray him as as a uh, a boogeyman of the left um but in actuality he's he's very complex and much more he's much more akin with a libertarian or a right wing type of political terrorist than he would be with a with a left I wouldn't I shouldn't say right wing but he's much more of a libertarian type of political criminal than he is belonging to the left so he starts there's this constant shift in, in who he is or what he is but like you said um the unabomber or that hoodie with the sunglasses that was the fbi sketch these things become these um memes that uh and signposts culturally where people could somewhat identify it but they really don't get or might not know uh who he is almost like q you know for QAnon or something but not quite like this, this thing where who is this person, or what are, are they? One person, or what is, and and, and what are what what's what's they're a chaos agent. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting you said that about the the way it sort of shifts from left to right, and and he's used as a boogeyman. I always think that's it, it's always interesting how Charles Manson has become a sort of boogeyman of the sort of the, the this is what hippies are like. And everybody seems to forget what a complete fucking racist he was. It's yeah. like, I've got a feeling the racism was a lot more uh, to do with, you know, it stands out a lot more than any of that love stuff. He's trying to, well, he also, well, there, it's strange because, well, he was such a schizoid, but he was he was thinking there was to be causing a race war where he'd be allied with, where the black people would rise up against white people. But in a way, then he also had a lot of his own innate racism. So it's like this strange, strange thing. I mean, Kaczynski also has a lot of contradictory threads in his writing and his presentation. You know, he he could have these really um, deep and, and sort of poetic moments where he's absolutely situated in nature and in his surroundings and completely at peace. And then he'll be, he'll slip into something where he'll say like, if I want to burn garbage on my own property, screw it. You know, like he's just, uh, it, it's really for him. Everything should be about wild nature, wildness. Nature, the, the plant, the, nature has its own energy and takes care of itself. Men are unable to handle it unless they're like him, like strong Ubermensch. You know, like he's very much about I could survive if you can't screw you. There's no real positive message to his program, except there's resonance. You know, he's talking about the corrosive natures of technology and industrial society, and I think a lot of we could all relate to that. And he's right on those points somewhat but when he gets into these whole things about his personal mission it's very much about his internal emotional scars and also his really he's like Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky like I have my own inside understanding of morality everybody else operates in another way and their morality is based on all these dumb things like getting up and like a, being like a, a machine to the industrial society being chained to these technological things that deny them true freedom and uh, are, are, are corrosive and will collapse upon themselves in a massive um, uh, calamity. And, you know, he saw himself uh, in a way saying like, well, it's better to knock the whole contraption over now through acts of terrorism to bring the collapse now rather than later because it's gonna be that much worse. So, you know, as you sift through his writing, you could sort of piece apart, okay, well, that's totally a psychopath thinking, and this is a very lucid person thinking. And what I have been, Tony and myself and, and Gaddy, like what we were really drawn to is that often, you know, when, when narratives of the mad bomber involve like, ooh, there's a madman out there and he's operating and like, he's a bad man, he's a monster and, and everything he's doing is monstrous and crazy people are just crazy. They never have moments of lucidity. Well. I mean, being insane is on a spectrum. Uh, be, even using the word insane, whatever you want to describe his, his, his malady, he could operate very normally, even if he lived uh, very idiosyncratically. He could still function in a way that someone would say, like, he's a little odd, but he's not anything abnormal in the West where there are a lot of weirdos living in the woods. So in that way, I think it's pretty, for us in terms of a storytelling telling, um, operation, it's pretty, we're drawn to 
trying to show people the, the human all too human or what separates me from him rather than being like, there's a monster and here come the good guys to get the monster and everything's going to be okay. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the Netflix, you know, bomber series that um, Kevin Spacey uh, produced and what's his name? Um, the dude from avatars. And it's just, it's horrible. Mm. I mean, people like, it, but it's, you know, they filmed it in Georgia. It looks nothing like Montana. It's just basically like, you know, the FBI is trying to get a, bad guy and then of course the trope of the fbi agent starts to identify with the bad guy i'm in too deep that whole kind of nonsense <laughs> i'm in too deep is there a point where he's having a shower and he sort of leans on the shower right. wall <laughs> the, i mean the writing that ted does the kaczynski does and uh, it plays a really prominent part in the movie and it, it made me sort of draw parallels with him which I think he must be drawing himself as well with sort of Walden and Thoreau and that sort of tradition of American pastoral Do, when you were preparing the script when you were uh, collaborating with your with Tony and, and and Gabby and did you did you go through all this writing were you how how deep did you get into that and what was that like incredibly deep we did a lot of initial research um in New York and then I went out to um the University of Michigan to the Labadee Special Collection, which is one of the largest collections of radical uh, political ephemera probably in the world. So if you're interested in anarcho-syndicalist movements, the Black Panthers, whatever, they have a massive amount of posters, paraphernalia, and, and, and literature associated with all these movements. So just as a, uh, a tangent, he happened, he went to his graduate, um, he pursued his graduate degree in in a real complex form of uh, mathematics at the University of Michigan, but hated it there. And they just happened to have this collection. So when he was arrested, they solicited him to have whatever material they could get from himself or from the FBI and to, to keep it there in their archive. And it turns out that the Kaczynski archive there is one of their most popular <laughs> access archives. So I went out there and I, threw about, I went through about 90 boxes of material over the course of a couple a week to 10 days, I can't remember, but like morning to night, every day pouring over uh, his writing. And a lot of it, most his journals have been photocopied by the FBI, most of them. Some are, they auctioned off and that's a whole other funny story, but a lot of his material is there. So we had gone through, we had accessed books written by authors from the material previously. And then I just went out to really dive in and, and just find some peculiar arcana. And it's really it's it was it was mind-blowing and also there are like 600 pages of notes on how to build bombs so at the end of that if the fbi is listening i think i do know how to build a bomb but i'm not going to build a bomb but it's all there and it, he, he wrote a lot of that in spanish uh believe it or not so that was very odd so uh yeah i mean we i just poured through tons and tons of documents out there were there were there ever times when you were sort of going through that that you sort of thought oh this is this is a moment that's definitely going to go in this is something uh, yeah Absolutely. And also a lot of it too was like, okay, well, we had heard about X and then you could sort of confirm it in the archive, which was great. And <clears throat> having another curious thing about the archive is he technically managed, well, he says he manages it from uh, the Supermax in Colorado that he's incarcerated in. And uh, so he'll send in current correspondence that he gets, that he hand copies, mm -hmm. and then he notes on it how to be sorted in his archive. So yeah, no, we we definitely I landed upon some stuff that was really great and just had to be had to be in the film, you know. And then so we revised the script through that. So it was just this constant iteration of 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 new material. But we really wanted to be as much as possible in his voice, because obviously in making anything, you know, we say this is a true story. Well, no, yes, but no, it's a it's a it's it's historical fiction as forensically accurate as you could make it. Um, it's a historical narrative as close to how we perceive Kaczynski's Kaczynski, if that makes any sense, rather than it's always going to be a bit of us. That's impossible to get away from the POV of the filmmaker and the storyteller. But the, you know, we really were striving to have that just really brutal accuracy. So you could just be sitting within him in the way that taxi driver works when you're with Travis Bickle or, you know, the sort of, or, uh, or the flip of, you know, Sheen's character in Apocalypse Now or Brando, like where you just you get into the, the sort of mental state of the character. But in this case, you know, having it be a, a, a real, a person who's still alive. Yeah. Did you have any contact with him or is that, is that even possible? It's possible. I never, I never, I don't, I thought about writing him. Shalto wrote him 
uh, and I, th I, you know, I hadn't at that point when he signed on, I hadn't met Shalto yet. I think I would have, I think Tony probably, I know Tony did try to sort of coach, uh, maybe coax him on how to, how to speak to him, but Shalto being who he is and he's enthusiastic. I think he just wrote his own understanding of him in a very effusive way. And I think Kaczynski's kind of a jerk as he saw in the film. Yes. Um, I think there's a way in, but I think he's probably would not have, like if you approach him in that sort of directly enthusiastic and earnest way, I, I don't know. I think he likes to play with people who are like that. So if, the, and I didn't want to really, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't write him and for my own reasons. I mean, because being inside this guy's head for a while really becomes an uncomfortable place. So um, I preferred a bit of distance. Although now maybe I, I could see myself maybe writing him and you know, he'll never see the film. I mean, I he'll only read about it, I imagine, uh, because the circumstances of how he's jailed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he has commented on some of the other things that have been made about him by saying, like, I read about the film that was made about me and it sounds like crap, you know, like that, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah, he's not good. I, he doesn't strike me as somebody who would be your perfect critic. Uh, for, for no. <laughs> You know, or even you know, he's gone back and forth. He's gone back and forth with even acknowledging that he was the Unabomber. Like sometimes he writes about himself, and like the, the Unabomber would, right? He still sometimes has a bit of critical distance from it, but he certainly is not. He doesn't separate himself from the politics of the Unabomber, but sometimes he, because he was for a long time, he was trying to peel the case, and so it was, it was pretty interesting to read his current uh, thoughts about who the Unabomber is, because he knows that the, the Unabomber, like I said, now has become like a Johnny Appleseed or a Paul Bunyan, like a type of uh, cipher for this new anti-technology movement that's grown since. So there's a sense that he wants to sort of claim ownership of it? To a degree, right. for sure. I mean, he sees himself centered in it, I think, but it's, it's you know, I, to, it, it, does he have any, I don't think he's has any um, moral crisis over the people he killed. And he certainly doesn't have any contact with his brother anymore. And his brother is the person who, who essentially got him arrested. And they were very close. And he thinks that his brother is a traitor, essentially, to, um, to his familial bonds, to the politics of being against things. You know, the, the, the brother was a hippie. Kaczynski was not a hippie, much mm. like man. You know, he was very about the farthest you could get from a hippie as possible. He, he loathed hippies, really, in a way. But he lived in a way that if you were a square person, you'd be like, that guy's a hippie. He lives in a cabin with no electricity and yada, yada, yada. But instead, he's someone obsessed with pure mathematics and and uh, never at... Here's another interesting thing about him. In all the writing I've read, he never references anything involving popular culture or film. The only time he ever mentions anybody that he's ever seen a film or TV is at one point he mentions the African queen when talking about... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. His family. And he says, my family is, it's like that scene in The African Queen when, um, when Bogart is wading through the muck and he's covered in leeches and my family are those leeches. That's the only reference I've ever <laughs> saw of him specifically talking about anything popular because then the only other popular culture reference would be Stephen Foster for music that he likes. So that's, you know, mid 19th century American, you know, way down upon the Suwannee River kind of stuff. Or, you know, uh, Baroque music. So he's not at all rooted in anything that, you know, he's like an alien in that regard. He has no um, social, he certainly had a spectrum disorder because he has nothing that he would ever be able to talk to you or me about 
in terms of common culture. Right, right. There's no common language there. Right. Even in terms of him writing his uh, notes in Spanish and, and even mathematics itself being often regarded as a language to describe reality. Yeah, exactly. An elitist language in, in, in many ways. Well, what about, I mean, I know you wrote this film, you released it. I mean, it had its premiere at Berlin, which is what, February, I think. So there's no way that you could have known about the January the 6th insurrection, no. uh, attempted insurrection. But you, you must have been watching the news and thinking this, there are so many parallels here uh, in terms of what Kaczynski did and that sort of subconscious, you know, is that what it, what he sort of represents as kind of American id that is a sort of, you know, this is where the monsters are living? I think... Not so much that he's a monster, but this is where the, our nightmares are, you know? I agree. I think to a degree, he is like the American id. And you brought up Thoreau before. I mean, I've in some of the uh, promotional material for the film at one point, I think I wrote a line like, you know, he it's Walden in the afterglow of Hiroshima. Like he's very much, he is, if Trump represents this latent fascism in the American id, I don't see Kaczynski as a fascist. Kaczynski is sort of this perverted American individuality, right? Um, he really wants to be left alone. The January 6th uh, troglodyte fascists, whatever you want to call them, are really trying, they're, they're also a perverted version of this sort of American identity, but it's as if it's, it's, they're truly fascistic. It's a ahistorical um, uh, understanding of what it means to be an American. They're saying we are inheritors of, of, you know, the, the 1776, all of you aren't, Trump is our godhead and we are here to, you know, um, manifest our, our understanding of history. So like, you know, there were, so in a way, uh, Kaczynski is part of the, the crisis in America now, right? I mean, there's certainly a large degree of Americans who are really distraught about control technology and worldwide. But in the American sense, the idea that, okay, I can't, I can't earn a decent living. I can't do X, Y, and Z because I'm constantly being monitored by these things that, that stifle my freedom. And I, if, I, if I could unchain myself from that and liberate myself from that, I would, I would be able to engage or energize some type of individual um, potential. I'm sympathetic to that. I don't believe in that type of individuality. I think it's kind of a, a, a very unfortunate, um, certainly it, it's, it's an energizing phenomenon in American ingenuity on the positive side, but the negative side is that it sort of abandons the idea of social bonds and, and, and community. For the, the January 6th crowd, they're this, I think it's all stemming from this idea that that the, the, the psychic energy or the, if, if there is a supernatural force to history and sometimes and that swings between the, the positive and the negative America is now unfortunately in this pendulum swing toward the negative id energy which is manifested by Trump and this in this um, ascendant American fascism and it's very troubling uh, you know I think the younger people who are approaching Kaczynski are more from the leftist perspective. Certainly there are libertarians who would identify with him because he was more of that. But I think there are a lot of young anti-technology, anti-capital activists that see Kaczynski that frame. And, and, and because they don't necessarily know a lot about his writings that were hard and, 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 and uh, you know, he was like, I want to kill a communist. And we have that in the movie. You know? like he says things like mm -hmm. where it's... Clear, he has a lot of contempt for leftists, um, but since that's not widely known, people then look at the things where he's correct upon, uh, where he's correct, where he's speaking about control and technology, and they're they're moving in, in that direction. So I think so, and it's my anecdotal opinion that some of the younger political activists who are who are resurrecting the idea of Kaczynski are approaching him from that way. So perhaps they could pull a positive type of political energy out of it and try to come up with some sort of counter to mass corporatization and technological control. But in terms of the negative id forces of January 6th, I think that's something separate from truly the Kaczynski, how to put it, the, Kaz the Kaczynski platform, if there is one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the big difference as well is that that was, to some extent, part of a mass movement 
you know, a, a collective action. And Kaczynski's sort of the opposite of that. He's sort of, uh, you know, he's on his own sending things out into the world. Right. And that's a good point. And it's, but the, and it's weird humor because in, in some ways, sort of like Dennis the Menace or like, you know, the neighborhood kid who's like vandalizing shit and causing, pre- like, oh, who broke into my house? Oh, that rascally Ted Kaczynski. He would, part of his sense of humor was to have, to act like he was part of a group. So I think he saw that he called himself, we are freedom club. Well, there was no, we It was just him, but he, I think he did that for humor, not to see himself as part of a group because he just thought that he was superior than most people. Although he was really this wounded person who needed love in his life or just human connection. But you know, his, his intellect and his, his Apollonian way of approaching the world never let him, he could never resolve that problem that need for human contact yeah and that's that's very much where the film sort of strength lies is in that um ambivalence that, that you you manage to i mean it's a really difficult balancing act of of not uh, of making you empathize with him but at the same time also making you very aware of how uh horrific his uh his own sort of psychic existence is as and and the actions that that come there from yeah and we were I mean, I was certainly, that was cent- central in all our minds, but I, I definitely was, you know, it's easy to make when you're so often in these films, these characters become too heroic, you know, it's a way to, or if it's like falling down or something, it'd be or a, a film where you kind of really see this kind of characters repulsive, but they become like a, an action movie star or the Joker, which I didn't like. It was, you know, parts of it look cool, but just that idealizing of that type of like terrible just you know they're just fuck they're terrible people right and and they're and i i thought the joker was flat and stupid in that way and the portrayal of i mean i think joaquin phoenix is an amazing actor but i i think todd phillips should maybe stick to other types of of uh storytelling and uh because i don't think you know ideal the goal is to like i said human all to human for me to explain these types of characters it's not to sort of say like oh yeah like the the the, the terrible american energy that is what that Todd Phillips Joker character is, which is just like a vicious nihilist who um, is out to just to kill and to glorify that. It's, it's in so much American cinema, you get these, they're not even anti-heroes. They just make that type of violent uh, violence and swagger heroic. And to me, I find that idiotic and juvenile. And, uh, you know, even if it makes for an entertaining film, it's just, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I don't think it's, it doesn't do it. it Given that's fiction, it's still it's 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 pretty problematic to me. Yeah, we are. I was having a conversation with Patrick McGillian. Um, uh, actually, it'd probably be the episode that goes out just before this one. Uh, and, we, and we were talking about Dirty Harry in very much those terms. Uh, that you know, I, I I love Dirty Harry, and I actually have a lot of time for the Joker. But I totally see your point, and I totally saw Patrick's point in terms of this is a real, uh, you know, him shooting the guys uh, while eating a hot dog is just uh, expression of this simplistic, we've got a problem, and here's here's a guy who just shoots people, and that solves the problem. And it's that sort of simplicity, you know, that that is, um, as you say, problematic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against, like, Dirty Harry, I liked when, when I was a kid, you know, like, there, but I see it now a little differently. Like, I'm not against that type of storytelling, or someone shouldn't tell that story. I just think it has to be, the balancing act is quite hard. So, like, I think the way that Phillips went to make his what phoenix's character sympathetic is just not deep so therefore it just becomes it he might not have maybe he thought he was doing something that was a little more um ambivalent and a little more a little more complex but you just don't but scorsese you know with 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 bickle with travis bickle you get schrader gets like to the core of bickle and he doesn't i mean he has that weird sort of violent redemption at the end where he's trying to save uh jody foster's dignity uh, and some really like again almost like there's the don quixote going for dulcinea but it's uh an insane quest you know i mean there's more ambivalence to bickle you know than the joker character and to me i feel like phillips was going for like that sort of schrader yeah i'm gonna show some gritty tough you know everybody keeps kicking this guy and look what's gonna happen this is what happens where you keep kicking white guys you know it's like it's very to me that's Obviously, has a lot of. It's a pretty loaded phenomenon right now. Yeah, it's it's definitely you know Scorsese, but but in crayon. I I, I mean again, I, that, 
I haven't got a problem with Scorsese and Crayon, to tell you the truth, but I do. <laughs> well, yeah, if we're going to get, if we're gonna get it, you know, we might as well anyway we can. <laughs> I do, uh, I do. Get, I, what, what I found strange about the, the reaction to Joker and the reaction to, well, I, I saw uh, Joker at Venice when mm-hmm. it was premiered and so nobody had seen it. And I came out thinking, wow, I was totally not expecting that. I was think I was very very down on the whole idea of the film so I came out very enthusiastic mm. and I, I enjoyed it and I remember talking to people and, and I talked to a guy Robbie Collins who writes for the Telegraph and he was saying oh this is a really dangerous movie this is really really dangerous it should be sort of buried in the middle of the sea and he he was like I liked it but it's a really dangerous film and I was thinking really is it and I, was, I was so naive uh, because the backlash and the the backlash and the front lash and all the rest of it very much um, uh, supported Robbie's contention that this was going to be a very controversial film. And I was just thinking, I just thought it was a better than usual comic book movie, you know? I mean, I, I, that on that, I think what you just said, better than usual comic book movie is correct. And I should probably be fair and give it another watch. But the, I do think to the degree that it feels dangerous is because something I was trying, I was maybe inarticulate about before, like the psychic energy, the, 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 the historical energy now feels very much driven to that, um, uh, that type of fascism and that type of uh, just violent male, white male energy in this. Um, and whether or not it should be buried at the bottom of the sea, I don't know, but what, what, it's reflecting this, it's reflecting forces that are maybe we're not, the Phillips wasn't aware of, but you know, knowing that he made Hated, which I really liked when I was younger, the Gigi Allen documentary. Yeah, it's an excellent documentary. Well worth digging up. I think it might even be on YouTube. I think you might be able to get it, watch it for free. Yeah, for a long time, it was impossible to find. But I remember, you know, just because, I mean, being a tri-state area person living in New York for a long time, I mean, Gigi Allen has all of these kind of seeming comic, but now actually like a little uncomfortable, but the fact that he was sort of into the Gigi Allen phenomenon early, and then you could sort of see this thread, there's a little echo of that in, in who the Joker is. Um, so just for, our, just for our listeners, Gigi Allen was a sort of punk uh, performer who, who would go to great extremes on stage of a little bit like Iggy Pop, but doing things like, I don't know, having- much more having- more violent, yeah, having having shits and such and beating. Literally. Yeah, literally, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so you can see where he got the idea for The Hangover as well. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, I, I, there's things about his filmmaking that I enjoy, but I just felt, I think, it, and also it could be peculiar, very American, you know, knowing that this is an American energy of violence. Um, and of course, we've been great exporters of violence to the world culturally, but this now really, um, you know, I grew up in uh, Newtown, Connecticut, where the school shooting happened, where you massacred with the um, 26 uh, year olds were massacred in, in school. And, and knowing that in a, on a personal level, just that this is just an all too common occurrence in America and seeing more and more of types of entertainment that speak to that id Mm. um that type of american id uh especially in this climate feels dangerous uh yeah it's kind of difficult isn't it because there's so i was thinking about how the sort of maga movement and the far right have appropriated and, and and taken so many things from popular culture which like so the idea of red i saw the matrix uh, resurrections last night and mm. the idea of red pilling has, mm. has become a big meme in oh, right wing yeah. circles fight club which is written by a sort of leftish gay mm-hmm. guy has been taken by the right as as a sort you know the snowflakes the word comes from from fight club uh yeah that that use of it so it's kind of like uh, I don't know. They'll 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 get anything, and there's a level of postmodern irony in, in that, which we always thought was the province of the left, was this sense of humor, you know. But it's totally been been taken over by the right. I think. Yeah, it's so fascinating because here, you know, um, forever on the right, you know, I, I was an avid listener to right wing radio just because I found it somewhat entertaining, but also just to know what uh, the other side is thinking. For years, Rush Limbaugh would constantly say you know, relativism, the historical relativists on the left, and they're always trying to relativize X, Y, and Z. Well, they've become the biggest relativists of all. And they've adopted this postmodern irony, as you described. And 
it's insane and so bizarre. And similarly here, like in America, we have um, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, and a lot of these guys use Molan Labe, which is like my, you know, uh, um, from, uh, is that Herodotus? It's basically, they've adopted a lot of the culture of Sparta, the understanding of the Battle of Thermopylae, not from reading Herodotus or Thucydides, but from fucking the 300. <laughs> so it's so they see themselves. So it's this whole comic appropriation of like what they think was classical culture, which actually to a degree informed some parts of uh, the American the Republican and uh, experiment in the 19th century, 18th century. But they're coming through it through comic books and a totally perverted like, you know, it's, it's just a postmodern um, trickle down, the lowest common denominator appropriation of something that they have no idea about. So like the, the fascist culture that's developing in America is so trashy. And I know when I read about the 1930s and people say, oh, Hitler and the Nazis were so trashy and coarse, but you know, to some degree, at least they're sitting around like mining, like, okay, there's this ancient Aryan culture and they're, it, if that was dumb, and you know, if that's like here, then the American stupidity fascist cultural mind is like, you know, way, 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 way below the Nazi mean. It's in some like gutter trash of like American fast food culture and just shit. And <laughs> so in a way, Hugo Boss designed Nazi uniforms, Amer American fascism's coming in like sweatpants and like a baseball cap and some stupid shirt that says like Molen Labe and some 300 quote on it and it's just it's awful I hate <laughs> to be classist I think the one thing about the situation is that you can't go too far in, in criticizing <laughs> it it's pretty much it's pretty foul um so you, you said you 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 worked with Tony on this trilogy and uh, is that an ongoing project then is that something you would like to sort of or is that just how you got to to Ted Kay. I, we would love to be able to do the John Brown film. Um, obviously, with the success of the Ethan Hawke, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw that. That was really great. The, um, the God, what, the Some, little bird. Something, something bird. Yes, yeah. uh, it, was, it was great. And I had I went into it with like no expectations and really enjoyed it. Um, I think he's an essential figure, and I think a, a good John Brown film would be great. Quentin Tarantino keeps talking about wanting to do a John Brown film. Uh, at one point, they were going to develop something for HBO that was going to be a series about John Brown. I don't know. Maybe we'll try that. The Good yeah. Lord I, Bird. The Good Lord good, Bird. That's it. Right. And people should see that if, if, if they haven't. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I would like to approach that. I've been thinking, you know, I've been kicking around a couple ideas uh, still in, in the, the history zone. We have sort of inspired by, um, from personally, I was thinking that uh, I have an idea involving... Um, American, like a like a noir set in post, actually just at the end of World War II, but it would involve American GIs who've gone AWOL and are running criminal gangs in Europe, which they did. And uh, it's a sort of not, and having a detective and a military detective have to track these gangs down because that was a phenomenon that happened. American stories are so obsessed with the good war that they don't realize that like th tens of thousands of GIs went AWOL and murdered people in Europe and ran gangs and- Oh, wow. And yeah. That's like the real third man feel to it as well. Yeah, you know, the yeah, yeah. Immediate uh, aftermath of the Second World War. That's that's a, that's a brilliant idea. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about that. I'm going to steal on your podcast, but if you steal it, just acknowledge me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just love the. I love the the sort of situation there, and also that idea of, as you say, of sort of uh, complicating. And a period of history which has been a little bit sort of Stephen Ambrose and uh, you know Steven Spielberg with Saving Private oh, Ryan yeah. and Band of Brothers. Yeah, I mean, all great, but at the same time, uh, yeah. Well, you have to. You have to tell, I understand the utility of common stories in history, right? I think the problem is that there's ultimate truth. Truth is aspirational, but there are many types of it's that Rochamon. There's many types of ways to get to what the truth is. And we have to, to have a functioning society in a civic culture. We have to have aspirational truths. We just can't sort of get dogmatic about them. We have to accept that they evolve and their input and the, and the points of view will shift with, what the, with how we feel culture.
truly at any time. And it's that pendulum swing. Like now we're swinging very hard into this violent perversion of, of what this sort of aspirational truth is. And then hopefully like, you know, the pendulum swings back to this place where we could start navigating toward something that's more civic and less destructive. Yeah, and that, and that different form of truth, uh, thinking about John Brown as well, I remember watching The Good Lord Bird after seeing Michael Curtiz's The Santa Fe Trail, which tells the same mm, story, oh yeah. but from, and, and is really, I'm not sure how well known the film is, but given that he made it a couple of years after Casablanca, it's such mm-hmm. a horrifically fascistic film. I mean, that's a really horrible I mean, it's a, yeah. it's it's birth of the nation bad in its politics. Oh yeah, I mean, just to have a digression of Brown Brown real quick, if you don't mind. Like he Brown, by the you know he by by he he's sort of free audience and he's living in the eighteen just up to the Civil War, and he's from New England, and New England has shifted from Puritan Puritanical Calvinism into a you know Congregationalism and sort of the religious culture of New England shifted but John Brown in the words of Thoreau and people who knew him they're like oh he's like our great-grandfathers I mean he's still living in this deeply Calvinistic mindset of like predestination and that you know sinners in the hands of an angry god that we're all doomed and the only thing you could do is is sort of act piously and protect you know and do the righteous thing which is to stand up for everyone and do God's will um, but you're probably doomed and you're going to go to hell anyways. So, you know, but you have to act for the good. So that he, he is this, in a way, he's like a leftist. It, it, it's like centering religion in the left, which is so kicked out right now. Like, you know, like every, we're so, everybody's so committedly secular that the idea that you could be religious and have a good point of view is ludicrous to a lot of people not to me but like a lot of people sort of see that as like a ludicrous point of view and they leave the religion to be something of like kooky right but there are plenty of progressive thinkers and who are inspired by the idea of god and christ and in this way i mean brown was this messy figure but he's sort of operating that like look slavery in in an era when the abolitionist movement is anti-slavery a lot of abolitionists still thought black people were nothing more than um a little steps above monkeys they just felt that it was immoral to enslave a human but they didn't think that they were equal to a black person but john brown believed in radical equality he believed that he was as equal to a black person as a black person was to him intellectually physically emotionally he believed that women should have the right to vote that they were uh, that there was no such thing as women's work you know, that women and men could work. So he had all these amazingly modern ideas, yet he has this great biblical beard and he sets out to, you know, avenge the, 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 the sin of slavery by murdering uh, slave, people he saw as slave supporters with swords <laughs> because he felt, you know, I mean, that's so, so he has this wildly complex approach I think it was very hard historically to deal with him, you know, because once the Civil War begins, he's executed in 1859 for the raid on Harper's Ferry. His last words are, um, the sins of this land shall not be avenged, but by blood or something like that, you know? So he says like, well, there's nothing we could do now except ride the wave of bloodshed that's coming for how terrible we've been to the the bond for enslaving African-Americans. And by the 1864, 65, Lincoln has gone from, sounding like, look, I'll do anything to, he was anti-slavery, but he'd say, I'll do anything to preserve the union, including allowing slavery or not, whatever it is, to making a speech in 1864, where he sounds like John Brown, right? Mm. In the second inaugural, it's a John Brown speech. But what happens, what happens after, what happens with the um, second, what happens after the second inaugural, after Lincoln's assassination, is re- the, the failure of Reconstruction, which is really the great American, the second American revolution in a way, right? Super radical. And it's ironic that the, it's ironic that the Republican Party of that period was the most radical, positively radical political party. You have all these great experiments where you have the first African-American senators are elected, the first congressmen who are Black are elected, right? That doesn't happen again for another 100 years. Mm. But once Reconstruction collapses, the, the, the idea of John Brown changes. So first, John Brown is 
seen as a hero to a large degree to the radical movement in America. And then he has to be demonized now that the South has sort of been redeemed with the collapse of, of Reconstruction and that we have this Jim Crow, this, in, this slavery by another name arises mm. again. Brown becomes the kooky weirdo that you see in Santa Fe Trail and, and the maniac and this sort of bloodthirsty loser weirdo. And really, and he's constantly portrayed that in popular culture and paintings and song. And until you get to the 1960s and then get someone like Malcolm X saying like, John Brown is the only white man I could be down with. or And you get resurrection of Brown in this sort of reinterpretation, re-centering re of him, let's say, or centering of him. I, I can't wait to to see what you do next, whether it's this noir or, or resurrected uh, John Brown. Uh, I think there's so so much scope, so so many uh, things that are interesting there. Um, one last question though, before I leave you, John, which is because um, we always ask, it's all, usually we're talking about film books, um, uh, but I'm sure you've read some film books. So could you recommend one for our for our listeners? Well, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, I was thinking that the Elia Kazan Life is kind of a fascinating film book, um, and it sort of speaks to a lot of my I know this wasn't maybe like your usual podcast in terms of like approach to film and writing, but since we've been talking so much about culture and history, he's, as you know, and your audience hopefully knows, just a really important American filmmaker. He's a Ottoman Turkish, he's a refugee from Turkey, arrives in, or an immigrant from Turkey, arrives in the United States. So he has this very different point of view to begin with you know in, in terms of his, uh, his his approach to being an American and then famously is a leftist a communist and then you know is essentially um, sells out uh, um, other communists in Hollywood during the awful McCarthy era and gets people are blacklisted and so you know he makes these these massively important films and he has such an incredible way. And also he's in theater. So he's kind of does, um, you know, he crosses genres, but his creative energy and his, 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 his cinema POV is then clouded and his reputation is sort of shot. So people want to say, oh, screw him, or they, they, they kick him to a side. And, and I think he had to struggle with that, obviously, for, for the rest of his life. But I think he's given what we've been talking about, these sort of complex uh, people, I, I felt that that might be a good book if people haven't read it. Um, it's not directly about the craft of making films, specifically saying, you know, like the way that Brisson writes about film, but it's just an amazing biography of a important filmmaker who is controversial. Yeah, it's called Ilya Kazan, A Life. By Richard, it's a Richard Schickel one. Yes, yeah. I, I, any of those uh, filmmakers who are coming in, in the, you know, from the 40s, 50s on, that, that it, a little bit like you were, we were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation, everybody's got a different point of entry. Everybody is coming from a different road and some are theater, some are TV, some have never directed anything and they just go straight into directing films. Some come from radio like Orson Welles, you know, so I think it's fascinating to see these people coming from different directions. Yep. John, thank you so much. I think, to tell you the truth, I think we did very well. I think that's, uh, I think I might have another screenwriter on at some point in the future. <laughs> You, you haven't poisoned the well. Well done. <laughs> well, you're great, man. And uh, I got a folder of stuff to send you from Saudi Arabia, but let's keep in touch. And, I, you know, it, you know, it was really great meeting you and this was great to do this with you. So. So that was my conversation with John. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, he's a smart cookie. He's a he's a very intelligent guy. Very interesting to talk to. And I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. Um, uh, really fascinating. His recommended book was uh, The Life of Eli Kazan um, by uh, Richard Schickel. Uh, so that's uh, that's a, a, a biography which I, I've read uh, a few years ago, which is what I would I would also um, add my voice to. Uh, controversial but fascinating, and certainly hugely influential figure, director of such hits as On the Waterfront and Viva Zapata. Um, all that I have left to do really is uh, thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and all of you for listening. Until next week. Please take care.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.